Registrations are now open for the 5th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Sydney on the 20th to the 23rd of April 2017. To register, please click on the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Alessandra Edwards, who's a clinical naturopath, Western herbalist and nutrigenomic specialist with a specific interest in digestive health, mental health and their interaction with the microbiome. Alessandra's worked in the natural health industry for over 10 years, both in the UK and Australia, where she runs Reclaim Your Health, a busy nutrigenomic and nutritional clinic in Melbourne Bayside. Alessandra utilises an integrative approach to practice, combining specialised blood testing, genetic profiling and gut microbiome sequencing to formulate personalised healthcare plans. She works with a number of highly regarded integrative medical doctors and speaks regularly on nutrigenomics, gastrointestinal and mental health. Alessandra, I'd like to warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now you're down in sunny Melbourne, <laughs> you're saying. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> <laughs> it's right this hour. <laughs> it is, certainly for the next 24 hours. That's right. Now we're going to be talking about something that can, can confound so many health professionals, indeed even medical professionals, and that's these quasi or, or, or facultative um, parasites that are Blastocystis hominis and Diantamoeba fragilis. So we're going to sort of start, I think, with let's delve a bit in about how you became first interested in parasites rather than just gut health, as most naturopaths do. Why treat parasites? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, as you know, both, uh, um, well, as we've talked about before, I think that my clinical interest has always been on gut and mental health. Mm-hmm. However, this particular focus on parasites uh, really took off, I reckon, about five years ago. Um, that was a time when um, I started to get a string of um, patients who were particularly uh, treatment resistant. So their IBS symptoms, I was finding, were not responding to the usual dietary and herbal treatments. And it's around about this time that I started to become really interested in um, the field of nutrigenomics. And um, that was about the time when uh, um, PCR uh, technology for detection of parasites in stools really took off in Australia and was becoming widely available uh, through Medicare. So it's something that, if you like, I kind of fell into. And then I started to get such amazing clinical results from my approach to parasites that um, over time it's really become part and parcel of what I do really on a daily basis. So I need to sort of cover this straight off the bat and that is that, you know, there's this interest in parasites as even treatment nowadays, but then of course there's an infestation where they cause symptoms. So when, when do you bother, I guess, treating parasites? When do you look for them as a problem rather than just part of the normal commensal microbiota? 
Ah, okay. Um, Well, I think that uh, you have to really uh, look at the clinical presentation for that. So I'm not someone to um, just go into treatment lightly. And um, I find that uh, I really have to take into account where the patient has come from. So just to give you an example, uh, on a daily basis, I see uh, a couple of different types of clients. One is the type of client who's had chronic digestive symptoms and has seen a number of specialists, um, both complementary and, and traditional. But the parasite diagnosis has been missed. So um, we action some tests and we get the, you know, we get the results. Yep. If, they, uh, if they do come back positive for the parasite and they have very chronic severe symptoms, that's when I decide to treat the parasite specifically. Right. The other type of client I see is one who uh, has been diagnosed with the parasite and they have either been um, prescribed sort of what's called the frontline treatment by their well-meaning GP, so <clears throat> first-line treatment in Australia through a GP for blastocystis and gentamiba usually is flagell or metronidazole. Yep. Um, usually they're not responsive, so some of these clients then have gone on to see um, different specialists and have gone down the route of doing uh, triple antibiotic therapy, usually orally followed by colonic infusion. So these kinds of clients I see, um, often they no longer have blastocystis or dientamoeba. Sometimes they still do, despite this approach, but inevitably they still feel really unwell. So they have really chronic symptoms. So in these clients, if they still have the infection, I don't treat the infection. I treat the person and I treat their digestive system. So what sort of parasites are we mainly looking at here? So the main ones that I see in clinic are definitely blastocystis hominis and Yentamiva fragilis. They're the two main ones, but but blasto is by far the most common one I see. I then see um, a a small number of people who present with both co-infections. And this is also followed by um, post-antibiotic treatment giardia. So the giardia is gone, but again, the, the symptoms are still as during the acute infection. Yep. And and what what are the major presenting symptoms that you tend to see? You know, as you mentioned before, you can see some sort of vague things and then some these chronic, um, vague chronic symptoms, but then sometimes people can present with a quite severe sort of overload. That's right, yes. And this is what is so confusing, I think, for Mm. many complementary practitioners is the fact that many of the symptoms that come with these infections actually um, can be symptoms that are related to other conditions. So generally speaking, um, I see some milder symptoms which, you know, are quite non-descriptive, you know, could be things like nausea, general fatigue, headaches are quite common, um, anorexia, so loss of appetite, um, halitosis. These are really the main sort of vague symptoms. And then usually they're accompanied by more severe symptoms like diarrhea um, and constipation, which is, um, you know, I'd like to mention constipation because I find when speaking to colleagues that um, most of them associate blastocystis and gentamoeba infections with diarrhea, but actually I see constipation, chronic constipation really often correlates right. with these infections. And the other thing is also alternating bowel patterns and, and occasionally vomiting. But I, if I had to pick one symptom that I would say is the most common that I see across the board is abdominal pain. Okay. So th- th- that 
clears something up for me because, you know, a lot of these sort of symptoms, they're rather ambiguous. You know, when you're talking about headache, allergies, things, how do you blame them on parasites versus something else? How do you tease that sort of thing <laughs> apart? I mean, this has always been the, you know, my chagrin, if you like, is, is how do you know when to say, ah, I think there may be something to look further into? Absolutely. Well, I think my, my answer to this might be a little bit biased in the sense that um, I tend to see those clients who've done the rounds, okay, right. yep. in terms of specialists and practitioners. So I, I have sort of this inherent bias that um, it might be a parasite. So generally speaking, I test pretty much everyone I see who has a combination of vague symptoms and chronic digestive symptoms. So that's generally my approach, and particularly because um, it is fairly easy to test. Uh, and whilst it's not the most pleasant test that you can request for a client to do, it, it is you know, easily requested um, and, and available through Medicare. So I always think, you know, let's not waste time beating around the bush. Let's rule out the parasitic infection from from the beginning. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think the thing is you, you, you're not beating around the bush. They've already been around the bush. Well, that's right. Often they have been around, often they have been around the bush. That's right. And, and speaking of bush, I've got to ask, particularly with Blasto, like, um, you know, it's, it's rife throughout the northern rivers in New South Wales. And I've got to ask, is it in the water supply? Like, is it, is it these people who drink rainwater and they're not treating the water properly? Or where do they get it? How do they catch it? Yeah, um, blastocystis is ubiquitous. So I reckon that about 60 to 7%, 70% of um, my uh, practice base actually has had uh, an infection with a, uh, with a parasite at some, time, at some point or other. So uh, exposure is definitely a, a big factor given that it's so ubiquitous. So blastocystis is usually transmitted by either eating contaminated food or drinking contaminated water. Right. So red flags and alarm bells really go off for me when as part of the initial um, conversation or the initial questionnaire that I send out to clients is um, when they tell me that they drink tank water yep. or that um, they, you know, some of their relatives have tank water and they see them regularly at weekends. Um, I find I have a lot of clients with whom I consult via Skype in um, northern New South Wales, so the whole of Byron oh, area. Yep. It is not a myth, I have to say. And, and I think it's because, um, generally speaking, that community is um, quite aware of wellness practices and environmental practices. And so most people there have got tank water, um, but they're not necessarily aware of the fact that you should have a good quality filtration systems and have have your tank water uh, regularly tested and and treated. The other thing I wanted to say is um, that's really common is overseas travel. So um, really, um, particularly travel to Southeast Asia, and that is because um, I, I have a hunch about this. I think that these parasites we know are are endemic in those areas. Yeah. Um, but secondly, I think is that when we travel to those countries, we're actually exposed to different bacteria, which are non-parasitic in nature. And so I think that that kind of disrupts somewhat our own uh, internal microbiota ah, and yeah. probably leaves us open in terms of uh, crowding out the parasite. And so that, that's just the theory that, that I have. So I generally uh, advise traveling with uh, a number of tricks up their sleeves to, to prevent this 
factor in terms of strain-specific probiotics, prebiotic fibers that have been shown in the um, research literature to be protective against gastroenteritis. Because that's the other thing that we often see is actually secondary parasitic infection following on from um, gastroenteritis that has occurred as, as a result yep. of um, overseas travel. Yeah. Now, you mentioned strain-specific probiotics, but indeed there may be some part of this puzzle to do with strain-specific parasites. Is that right? Absolutely. And um, I guess that takes me a little bit into the the realm of, of research. I think that there's, you know quite a bit of misunderstanding in terms of the research that's available um, about these uh, parasites. And so what we know in terms of the, the research is that there is no consensus as to whether you know, blastocystis is purely virulent in terms of the parasite or whether it is a pathobiont. What I mean by that is that potentially blastocystis could be an organism that could actually live quite happily in symbiosis with our microbiota in our digestive tract, but has the potential to go bad. Now, at this stage, we don't know why in some people it goes bad or not. What we do know from the research is that there are many subtypes of blastocystis, but again, the consensus as to what that means isn't there. Um, What we know for sure is that um, subtype 4, for example, is most commonly associated with chronic diarrhea, so um, ah. more difficult, uh, yeah, more more chronic symptoms. Yeah. Um, and but other subtypes like one, two, and three have actually been found both in asymptomatic cohorts as well as symptomatic people. So we don't really have an awful lot to go on at this stage. And I, for one, don't actually worry too much about the subtypes. Um, so my treatment approach, because there is there is one kind of test that you can do in Australia that looks at some of the subtypes, not all of the subtypes. And um, really, I think that if you base your treatment strategy uh, on the clinical symptoms and the medical history, then you really shouldn't have to worry about the subtype. I love the word you use, pathobiont, because it's a sort of juxtaposed sort of term rather than symbiont. We have a pathobiont, so it's a pathological agent under certain uh, situations or criteria. One that I've got a little bit of a flavour for is these segmented filamentous bacteria, the SFBs. But it's really Mm. interesting that you say that, that, you know, it could well be that it's the terrain that we set up around it that causes it to go, oh, hell, I'll live in that. Is that where your sort of treatment sort of lends itself to? Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you've asked me this question because this is what I'm really passionate about as a as a clinician, and um, I'm I'm really acutely aware of the um, debate around blastocystis, and it seems to me very polarized approach that we either treat or we don't treat. So antibiotics are bad, and this is good, and and I think that again, um, this is what uh, as naturopaths. Uh, and herbalists, um, we are so good at. This is what we have to offer our clients in the sense that I think you need to ask yourself your question as a clinician, what is the path that your client has followed in order to be where they are today? Why is it that some people are symptomatic with blastocystis and others quite happily can coexist with this parasite all their lives without having any issues? Mm. And in fact, 
Um, some of the new research that's coming out uh, around blastocystis, which is what I find exciting, is that they're now starting to look at um, the microbiota diversity index in people who are affected by blastocystis opposed to those who, are, who don't have the infection. So I think that that's really, really interesting. So in terms of the question you asked me, my approach is first and foremost taking a really good history and doing a good physical examination. I think that this is probably the most important determinant factor in terms of how I select the treatment. So what I'm thinking of in terms of, um, you know, specifics is um, you need to ask uh, questions related to their birth. Um, did your client have uh, a birth that was uh, C-section or were they born vaginally, where they breastfed from the beginning, where they bottle fed, um, was um, their mother affected by group B strep and therefore um, did she have antibiotics uh, given at birth or in the first 24 uh, hours following the birth? Um, these are things that are going to start giving you an indication as to the kind of ecosystem that yeah. is in that person's gut. And following on from there, finding out about the family history, other mental health issues, is there a history of atopy, digestive issues, growing up, what was their family diet like? I mean, we know that um, an individual's microbiota for life is established in the first three years of life. Yeah. So, those are really important indicators because microbial diversity does not change throughout life. What you're born with is what you've got. Now you can enhance it and optimize it, but understanding where the nurture points for your clients are are going to be really it's going to be really, really um important. And then understanding their current toxic environment. So, for example, do they use herbicides? Do they use pesticides? Yep. Do they eat organic food? Are exposed to uh, a daily in intake of glyphosate? Uh, do they filter their water? Are they drinking a lot of chlorine? All these things are going to have a huge impact on their general ecosystem. And um, for me, in terms of my clinical experience, I have found that restoring this ecosystem through a number of techniques is what makes the huge difference. And sometimes um, we actually end up clearing the parasite, even though um, killing the parasite per se was not my number one treatment aim. My treatment aim was to restore digestion yeah. and the ecosystem. And then we retest and the parasite is just spontaneously gone. Now, this is something so, I love. I love the way that you say that because I've just, I've so often have an issue with this kill, kill approach, this sort of switch mentality. It's like, it's almost like a knee jerk reaction to things. Um, and I'm so glad to hear you talking about terrain and these results that you're getting. But I've got to ask though, with regards to the medical approach, of course, there, you know, a, a, a GP, a gastroenterologist will want these sort of definite things to treat and a definite result from a treatment or else it's like, well, why am I treating? And I've, I've seen that even like Professor Tom Barodi says, it, look, if there's, no, if there's no difference, I'm not going to treat because what, what difference am I going to see? You know, so it's, he's, he's sort yeah. of in a quandary there. Whereas what you're talking about is saying, well, how about we get the digestion back? And it may be that the parasite just goes away. I mean, <clears throat> at the end of the day, the reason why people want to uh, clear the parasite is because they want to be well. Yeah. Sure, in a minority of cases, I do get the odd phone call when people are absolutely adamant they want to get rid of the parasite. And they ask me, will I treat them? So then I start asking them questions and they're completely asymptomatic. They don't exhibit any 
uh, any symptoms of an impaired digestion. And so inevitably, my, question, my answer is, no, I'm actually not going to, to treat you in the, in the sense that I'm not going to give you antimicrobial herbs. But I'd be very happy to help you continue optimize your digestive symptoms, your digestive function, so that um, you um, don't end up developing symptoms as a result of the of the parasites. And I think that um, whilst my approach is very biomedical, and I like um, you know testing, stool testing, blood testing, and and you know all of those um, wonderful measures. techniques, mm. subjective. That's right, objective. Uh, measures. At the same time, I think it's important to remind ourselves as to why we are naturopaths and why we're called naturopaths and not gastroenterologists. Mm. So, um, so I'm not here to judge their approach. That I, I, I work with a number of, of specialists and doctors, and I think that you know um, most of them do an amazing job. But they certainly don't have this uh, bird's eye view that is unique to to naturopaths, you know. Um, So I really um, just encourage people out there to even use mind mapping, um, whether on traditional pen and paper or getting yourself an app that does that and starting to think laterally and putting all these things together because that's where really our our strength shines. And and the results that we can get um, are, are incredible. Yeah, and indeed with the medicines, as you spoke about right at the beginning, Flagyl being one of the first line medicines, they're showing resistance to this, right? Absolutely, yes. And this has been shown time and again. And yet, uh, unfortunately, many GPs are not aware of this. So, um, uh, unfortunately, this is quite a difficult conversation that I often have with clients, particularly if they've had the same GP for a number of years and and are quite attached to that. Um, Because I tend to suggest going to see someone else who I know is a little bit uh, more versed in, in recent research. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly that is problematic, and particularly the indiscriminate use of, of flagell uh, over recurrent courses, and particularly in children. So you end up seeing these these cases where, um, unfortunately, the blastocystis or the dentamoeba are still there, and uh, um, they their their stools are, are far worse than than before they treated. So it's uh, instead of a win win approach, it's a lose lose approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I say, yeah. Now, uh, is there any way to tease apart with a symptom picture an infection or an infestation or an issue with blasto versus diantamoeba fragilis? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure about that. Not not something that I have have noticed. Um, Perhaps... Perhaps in terms of virulence, I would say that um, blastocystis uh, can be stronger. So in terms of really chronic resistant cases with uh, severe diarrhea and mm-hmm. constipation, mm-hmm. Um, for me, is more looking at particularly the age of of the client. Ah. Um, that's really important because we know that yentamiba um, is more common in young children and toddlers. Right, and uh, and that certainly seems to be true in my clinical practice. I see a lot more of that parasite in in toddlers and uh, and uh, children around the age of you know five to eight, um, whereas uh, blastocystis seems to um, become more common from teenage years onwards, and the incidence increases with age. Now we don't know why that's the case. I think it's probably due to a number of reasons. One, we know that blastocystis continues to uh, reproduce and colonize. 
throughout life. So um, unless you're taking these measures that I was talking about earlier in terms of restoring the ecosystem, blastocyst is just going to increase and increase. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's so ubiquitous, um, it goes without saying that as we age also, we're exposed to it more. And uh, the other thing is that we know that uh, gut microbial diversity decreases with age. Yeah. So, and also there's, there's the phenomenon or phenomenon of immunosenescence. So I think that all these these uh, factors are contributors to why uh, blaster is more common in adults than children. Now, I just need to cover off, and I'm probably sort of backtracking a little bit here when you you um, told us all about the, the symptoms, but I'm just hooking into things like a possible link with irritable bowel syndrome. And, you know, there's a, a to me, this is new um, to some practitioners are much more versed in this than me, but that's small intestinal bowel out overgrowth or SIBO, how do you tease apart an infectious nature versus a non-infectious nature? Well, I often see the two go hand in hand. Right. So uh, the the two uh, very often coexist. And, uh, and this is why um, testing is particularly uh, important in these cases. And so um, in terms of the uh, symptom picture, with SIBO, I particularly see pronounced bloating as yep. the number one presentation. But of course, there have been cases um, where you know bloating hasn't been the number one presentation, but constipation has been more predominant. Generally speaking, again, going back to what I was saying about the terrain and the ecosystem, when I see uh, um, when I see these symptoms in terms of changeable bowel uh, bowel movements and um, bloating and pain. I'm basically on the alert in terms of what could be going wrong all the way from mouth to anus. So um, it's a matter of asking the right questions and taking the right the right history. Yeah. So, for example, with SIBO, um, there may be discomfort that occurs very quickly after eating. There may be bloating that occurs very soon after eating. And um, there may be a history of um, PPIs, for example. There may be a pre-existing infection with helicobacter, um, pylori, um, ongoing use of NSAIDs, for example, all those things are going to be uh, risk factors for SIBO. Practically speaking, again, I usually rule out. If I feel that, that SIBO is a differential for me, then I will refer to the GP to get the uh, fecal PCR multiplex to rule out the parasite, whilst at the same time, I refer privately to um, a um, uh, a breath testing clinic to rule out the SIBO. So the approach is multifactorial and we would basically approach the SIBO first yep. and then start working on uh, on the parasite. And I think it's important to uh, approach the SIBO first because um, it can basically perpetuate a cycle of uh, inflammation and uh, poor motility that are going to negatively impact what I'm trying to do with the treatment. So when I'm treating uh, parasites like blastocystis, uh, I modify the diet quite considerably to increase levels of prebiotic fibers. So I um, recommend a, a high fiber uh, diet. And so if there is um, a dysmotility picture, it's really important that we address that first. And how does that, how do you sort of mesh that, if you like, with the low FODMAP diet in IBS use and things like that? 
how to, like when do you tease that apart and so um if if i if the client has been i don't necessarily put everyone on a low fodmap diet um so but if the client uh, tells me that they have actually uh, they feel better on the low fodmap diet. Mm. Then I use uh, manufactured prebiotic fibers that are compatible, yep. whilst maintaining the diet as a low fodmap diet, but adding sort of these uh, supplements that um, don't co- don't cause disturbances. And do you use natural medicines as an adjunct to some antimicrobials? So like let's dare I say the word selected antimicrobials, or do you choose to? only use natural medicines because they've already been there, done that with the pharmaceutical antimicrobials and they haven't worked? So if they, um, again, it depends. It depends on the individual. So uh, if they... um if they've had the uh, the antibiotics, particularly the you know the triple therapy, and the blaster or you know gentamoeba is still there, which incidentally I do see. I know it sounds incredible, but I see this. Yeah. Uh, then I do not give um, I do not give antimicrobials. So I will give selective antimicrobials that are actually very gentle, um, and at the same time we do all the gut repair. So with um, yes. prebiotic fibers that are rotated. Um, you know, this high fiber diet, high polyphenol diet, and um, specific probiotics. Um, so that's that's generally my my approach. Yeah. Now I need to ask about the specific probiotics because you know, just like pathogens, or sorry, we, naturopaths are very very well versed in strain specific probiotics, um, but not for strain specific pathogens. But there is there is use for certain strains of certain species of probiotics to get a certain um, defined response, if you like. Um, so which ones do you use? And has, has anybody researched any of this? So um, my preferred strain for addressing uh, parasites is um, Saccharomyces boulardii, um and the biocodex strain yep. uh, specifically. And uh, uh, the reason I selected that one is because um, it, it is one of the few ones that has actually been researched. Now, there, there isn't an awful lot of research on it. And I have to say that, again, the, the studies on it are a little bit um, confounded in the sense that very often when they do these uh, trials, or uh, blastocystis intervention, whether with Saccharomyces boulardii or antibiotics, they, uh, in my opinion, they test too soon after treatment. Mm -hmm. And they also usually retest using um, the wrong techniques, so just microscopy and culture. Right. Uh, And I think that often you do get, um, you know, good results in these trials. Even metronidazole, you know, Flagyl has had positive results in the literature, but I think it's because possibly um, the counts are being reduced and so then the microscopy and the culture are not really picking up. Yeah. However, I I have been using this strain for quite some time now and I think it's incredibly well tolerated and the results are really, really great. Um, the other strain that I use, not specifically for uh, addressing the parasite directly, but more for fostering um, the growth of beneficial bacteria is uh, Lactobacillus from Nothus GG. Um, so they're the two main ones that I use initially. And then um, after doing initial protocol, about six to eight weeks, 
um, I, I can select different strains according to how the symptom picture is changing so as to whether I need uh, something that's more immunomodulatory or if there is uh, a mental health picture with anxiety, then I might select a different strain. Right. Okay. And, and do you use, look, I guess this is a, a piece of string question, but can you give us a general time frame? I know that's something that we shouldn't really ask because every patient's going to be different. But can you give us a general idea of what sort of time frame you're looking for results? Yes. So if um, if the client is uh, treatment virgin, as I call them, in the sense that they haven't come after flagell, then I would say uh, six to eight weeks. So this would be on rotational um, herbal antimicrobials and um, and then the stated probiotics that I've said and prebiotic fibers. And then I might follow with another, you know, four to six weeks of um, prebiotic fibers and continue to increase the the dietary variety, which is the hardest thing to do. Um, So usually start by introducing very small levels of lentils. Uh, very well cooked in, in minute quantities. Um, and then I usually wait uh, at least six weeks. And ideally, if the if the client will allow me, uh, wait eight to 10 weeks before retesting, provided that they're not going to be traveling overseas in that yeah. time or going to Byron Bay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in which case, I advise if we can retest uh, before they go, because otherwise you don't know. Um, so, so that's that's the sort of the treatment virgin case. Now, in the case of clients who have had, um, you know, extensive uh, treatment before, or who have just general chronic conditions that go with it, and have had uh, severe food chemical intolerances for a long time, then treatment can be upwards of one to two years for sure. And when I say that, I mean that there will be a step by step gradual improvement in the symptoms. So, for example, you know, the diarrhea might go or the constipation might go. Um, that, that goes fairly quickly. But in terms of being able to introduce a really broad um, variety in food groups, that's, that's the trick. That's the thing that takes the longest in these clients. And I, I guess I have to ask you to go through for our practitioners um, any red flags to look for, the obvious ones, but also maybe some more uh, grey areas where you might go, aha, something's going bad, something's going on. Yes. Um, I'm um, personally very uh, integrative in my approach. So um, I always, always refer all my clients to a GP every, every time. So after the initial consultation, everyone will be referred back to a GP. I do this for a number of reasons. Um, number one, I think it's good practice. I didn't attend medical school, so I feel that uh, from a you know medical diagnostic perspective, I need to be safe. And mm-hmm. so for best duty of care in terms of um, my clients, I always refer. So I think it's important to always write a good referral letter that is... Um, you know, appropriate and succinct. Uh, so that's something that I, I recommend that you always do. Um, but um, in terms of actual flags, I would say the most important ones that you have to refer straight away would be blood and mucus in the stool, absolutely, and really severe acute abdominal pain accompanied by um, fevers, particularly, um, you know, clammy sweats. Yep. Um, when there is uh, weight loss, that has been going on for some time. Sarcopenia should always be referred. Uh, things also uh, like severe night sweat would be um, pretty important mm. to um, 
not not to uh, not to ignore. Yeah. And uh, and and I think that just the one thing that I like to say is that. You know, I've uh, in the last few years there's been an explosion of um, forums related to natural health that uh, that are available to us practitioners, and I think that that is fantastic. But at the same time, I'm a little bit dismayed by the attitude that I, um, I tend to read on a regular basis in terms of the disparaging comments of. Um, doctors. And I have to say, I think there's good doctors and bad doctors just as much as there's good naturopaths and bad naturopaths. And and I think that um, we can gain so much by fostering good relationships with doctors who are open-minded about having a complementary approach. You really end up having the best care for your client. Absolutely. And in that way, you know that they're going to be safe because um, these red flags are not going to be missed. And at the same time, I find that these doctors who are open-minded are absolutely delighted when you take take off their hands these very difficult clients who are not getting better just on a low FODMAP diet, where they've referred to a dietitian. So um, that is just my one piece of advice as to how you can grow your practice, because you will also get a lot of referrals from these doctors who are desperate to get some good practitioners to help them with these, um, you know, vague chronic cases. Mm. I, I, I totally, totally agree with you. And, you know, like I was one of these closed-minded standard health care practitioners. I was closed-minded as a registered nurse. Um, and notwithstanding that, you know, there are some medicos that are just closed-minded and you're not going to get anywhere, um, I think we have to realise that if you want to walk a mile in their shoes, be a doctor. <laughs> it, it's not an easy Absolutely. job. <laughs> no, it isn't. It isn't. And really, just like um, everything, you know, um, I often um, see clients who come from a different complementary practitioner and I don't agree with the treatment approach they've taken. So uh, I think being open-minded is... It's the thing that's most important and absolutely, you know, there's many GPs who um, as soon as they see a referral letter coming from a naturopath, they don't even read it. And that's fine. So you just learn your lessons and you don't refer to that GP anymore. So yep. um, what, what I'm saying is just put, put the effort in, go and visit some GPs, maybe try some out in your area for yourself and see what you think, you know, have a chat with them as part of your consultation for yourself and, mm -hmm. and ask them whether they'd be open to you referring some clients to them and um, see what their approach is. Now, I have to ask, have you written a book, books, and if not, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is what uh, um, my mentor asks me on a monthly basis. Um, uh, I think, no, I, the answer is categorically no. There is one in the pipeline related to um, gut health and Great. and mental health and the connection between resilience and gut microbiota. It's, ah, a, it's yes. a particular um, interest area of mine. Um, just like everyone else, I think, who uh, runs a busy practice and has young children, uh, time. So the moment I can find that time machine, <laughs> um, there, there will be many books coming your way. <laughs> so, okay. So the next question, I guess, is for practitioners to gain a better understanding about how to um, manage patients with these sorts of issues with the parasites. And notice I didn't say treat the parasite necessarily, but, um, but how to manage these sorts of patients. Where can practitioners go for really good information? There are some very 
some really great um, people out there. Um, my mentor is Vizan uh, um, Horolak yep. um, in Tasmania, and um, he's just um, an absolute wealth of uh, both intellectual knowledge and clinical experience. So um, any courses you can do through him, I would highly recommend that. Uh, you can also look him up on YouTube and uh, he's done a number of talks and, uh, and lectures. Um, so that would be my number one yep. approach. There are also some online courses you can do through Health Masters Live, which are always uh, very informative. Um, and at the end of the day, I think uh, also not forgetting your research skills because you know, we've got access to PubMed, Medline, and so uh, keeping up with the research in those fields is really, really critical. And not forgetting the traditional approach. So, you know, there's some great books on traditional uh, herbal medicine and uh, starting to utilize, you know, those particular herbs that, that really, really, I think, a great approach. What about, I've got to ask, what about some of the old texts like um, uh, the herbal texts like David Hoffman? Do you ever use those or do you tend to sort of steer I towards do. like Kerry Bones? No, I do. I do. And uh, I, uh, I go through phases actually because, you know, um, you tend to forget things. And I think those books are amazing and I do like sort of the old classics. So um, I basically tend to do a mixture and sometimes when I feel that um, I've kind of forgotten some of the fringe aspects of a particular herb, for example. So I'll just sit down of an evening and just go through and leaf through um, this wonderful classic textbook. So I think that's a great point. Excellent. Alessandra, I can't thank you enough. You, I mean, you've really opened my eyes with regards to a few things that I just, I, I kept on getting confused about, well, what's the relevance? How do I know that it's this and rather than that? But I've got to say, I really do love that you, you treat the patient and you look at the terrain rather than just honing in and trying to kill the poor little bug that may or may not be the, the baddie. So I guess that's an oversimplistic term. So really thank you for sharing your um, wealth of experience today with us on FX Medicine. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. 2016 has been a great year for FX Medicine. We've celebrated the first anniversary of our dedicated website, fxmedicine.com.au. And we're also very honoured and proud to be the recipients of the Complementary Medicines Australia CMA Award for Most Outstanding Contribution to Research, Education and Training. We love bringing you relevant content which is designed to improve safety and clinical proficiency. We're so very grateful for your continued support and please do let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future by dropping us a line on fxmedicine.com.au, Twitter or Facebook.